From the Garrison Institute, this is Climate, Mind, and Behavior. I'm Eleanor Bennett. Each episode will explore groundbreaking intersections between climate change, resilience, contemplative practice, and human behavior. And you're approaching a rational, serious government like Norway and saying, you know, what I think we ought to do is build a big tunnel, a long tunnel, basically a hole in the ground near the North Pole and store a lot of seeds. I mean, I did have people, some of them I know, you know, friends that were saying, that's scary, that's that's crazy. And, um, you know, you propose this and you do this and that that's the end of your career. People are going to be making fun of you. <laughs> Deep inside an Arctic mountain on a remote island off Norway is the Svalbard Global Seed Vault. Known by many as the Noah's Ark of plant life, it's a bunker filled with backup copies of more than 850,000 crop types. The vault was built to ensure the world's food supply has the diversity needed to stand against the threats of disease, climate change, and famine. When I take other people down there and we get to the end of the tunnel and we go in the room where all the seeds are, and when they exit, they're always very quiet. I've had people uh, walk out of the room with the seeds with tears in their eyes. Dr. Carrie Fowler is a crop diversity pioneer and the father of the Svalbard Global Seed Vault. Not only did he propose its creation to Norway, he led the plan for its establishment and is now senior advisor to the Crop Trust that oversees its operations. His mission, as described in his TED Talk, is nothing less than to help save the world from agricultural collapse, one seed at a time. Dr. Fowler is the author of several books, including his recently published work, Seeds on Ice. We sat down together last week to explore his life's journey from a Tennessee farm boy and activist in the civil rights movement to, as some have called him, the biodiversity warrior of our generation. I guess you could say there are two kinds of crop diversity. One kind is the kind that everybody knows, and that's the diversity we have between our crops. We have carrots and lettuce and tomatoes and potatoes. But the other kind of diversity is the diversity within each crop. So there are many different kinds of potatoes or tomatoes or carrots. And those differences can be really visual. All those crops come in different colors, for example. But the differences can be um, deeper than that. They can indicate resistance to a particular pest or disease or a different nutritional quality or an ability to grow in really hot weather or weather that's overly wet. So um, there are those kind of differences too. And that's the kind that I'm really concerned about for the most part is the diversity within the different species of agricultural crops. And when did you decide that crop diversity was your issue? I'm not sure I ever really decided it. Um, many, many years ago, as in several decades, I came across this, this issue, this subject, and I thought, well, this is really interesting. So I'll spend a couple of months looking into it and seeing what's there. And that was, um, oh, I don't know, about 40 years ago. I just never got tired of it. So I kept going still going. It's amazing. And when did the direct connection to climate change become clear to you? And was it always obvious to you and, and to others? I, I think the connection with climate change for me came rather late in the game. Um, 
it certainly wasn't something that was being talked about 40 years ago. But perhaps 15 years ago, uh, it seemed to me that um, that we were going to have to conserve crop diversity because it was, in a way, conserving the traits that were going to be necessary to help our agricultural system adapt to climate change. So it dawned on me that the work I was doing was really climate change work and, and, and really always had been because plant breeders and farmers are always um, having to adapt their crops to whatever the climate is. Maybe in the past it was a little less dramatic of an adaptation, but it was still adaptation. And adaptation doesn't fall down out of the sky. It's not something that just happens naturally. It's something that you create, in a sense, by combining traits from different varieties to create something new. And that's been going on since, since the dawn of agriculture. Did you at some point have to say to other people in the crop diversity world, look, this is a climate change issue? Or was that, were they ready to hear that, I guess is what I'm asking. Oh, sure. Um, I said it at the first staff meeting when I became executive director of the Global Crop Diversity Trust. I walked in and said, this is a climate change organization. And they looked at me like I was crazy. Because in those days, people didn't make those kind of connections. And um, the agricultural world and the environment world and the climate change world were all sort of three separate types of institutions and people even. And, and you've seen that change now, or is there still a little bit of, I don't think this has to do with climate change. Um, I think it's changing, um, but there's still a long way to go before people make that connection. They don't, I think many people in the general public sort of take it for granted that crops will adapt to whatever. And there's no such thing as taking it for granted in the natural world. That's not how evolution works. And in the case of our crops, that evolution is in our hands because they're domesticated. And we're the ones that decide which variety goes in the field next year. Moving into, I think, the thing you might be most famous for when you Google Carrie Fowler on the Internet, the seed bank comes up. Can you talk to me about what is that? Sure. It'll probably go on my tombstone someday, or at least in the obituary, right? <laughs> So um, the seed vault in its simplest form is really kind of a tunnel in a mountain near the North Pole. And at the very end of that tunnel, we have a couple of vault rooms, and there we're storing seed. We're freezing seed for the long term. And the purpose of it really is to freeze a sample of all the unique crop diversity in the world. We can get to how much that is and what that means in a minute, but... Um, we're trying to do that as a backup policy, kind of an insurance policy for seed banks around the world. Almost every country in the world has a seed bank, and they have a seed bank to conserve the breeding materials um, for their crop breeding programs, for their agricultural systems. So bad things, of course, can happen to these seed banks around the world. So they can be vulnerable to fires and floods and wars and equipment failures and everything. And in the past, when that happened, any of those bad things happened, you would have in the extinction of a particular crop variety. And so there's a variety of carrots that would just never be seen in the world again. And that unique variety might in turn have unique traits. Maybe it was the only variety in the world that was resistant to a disease that you know, you haven't even seen yet. So it's a really bad thing when when that happens. And so we, a couple of us got together and we thought, well, this is, we, we've got to put an end to this um, avalanche of extin extinction that was happening uh, quite regularly. 
to make a long story short, we, we devised this plan to have a backup facility near the North Pole underground uh, where it was far away from the dangers in the regular world and and it would be naturally frozen. So um, equipment failures wouldn't wouldn't mean too much there. I mean, it seems like almost the only place in the world you could do that. Uh, yeah, it, it, it almost is. Um, there's one place, we didn't look at it seriously, that offers colder conditions on a regular basis. So it would have been nicer in that regard. That's in eastern Antarctica. But you can't get there. And we had to be able to get there and to put seeds in and get seeds out. And there had to be an infrastructure around us. So this is the farthest north you can fly on a plane in the world. And there is good infrastructures in Norwegian Village up there. It's very safe. So it, it offered just about everything we needed. So did people think, I've, now I feel like I've asked you this kind of question twice, but did people think you were crazy when you first proposed to make copies of all the most important seeds in the world and put them in an Arctic mountain? Well, I I wondered, um, I was sort of asking that question myself. Yeah, I think it, it's funny, you know, now the, the facility's been running uh, about nine years now and we haven't had any problems and uh, we have 900,000, almost 900,000 samples up there. So everything's going well. And you could look back on that now and say, well, oh, that was a very logical, reasonable thing to do. Um, but at the time, it was also, it was a pretty crazy thing to do. And if you don't have a seed vault and you've never, and there's never been such a facility in the world, and you're approaching a rational, serious government like Norway and saying, you know, what I think we ought to do is build a big tunnel, a long tunnel, basically a hole in the ground near the North Pole and store a lot of seeds. I mean, I did have people, some of them I know, you know, friends that were saying, that's scary, that's that's crazy. And, um, you know, you propose this and you do this and that that's the end of your career. People are going to be making fun of you. <laughs> and, and what do they think now? Uh, they don't remember what they said now. <laughs> so. Um. What does it feel like to walk inside the seed bank and have, is it half a billion seeds? Yeah, I think it's about a half a billion. We we have samples, and each sample is about 500 seeds of about 900,000 different crop varieties. So um, what does it feel like? Well, I, I guess I feel a little bit the same way other people feel. I know when I take other people down there and we get to the end of the tunnel and we go in the room where all the seeds are and when they exit, they're always very quiet. I've had people uh, walk out of the room with the seeds with tears in their eyes because it is a very highly emotional thing to see all of this. Well, you're in a room that has more of the Earth's biodiversity than probably any other room in the world. And it's a it's a history, it's a living history of, of even us. Um, all of these seeds have somehow survived an unbroken chain of evolution down to the present day. So it's your ancestors and my ancestors over maybe 500 generations that have cared for these seeds and, in a sense, bequeathed them to us. And you realize the enormity of the effect of this particular facility, which is that as far as humanly possible, this is going to conserve that diversity essentially forever. So people can get very emotional. And I myself, um, I 
always feel at peace down there. Um, it's um, m some of my happiest days are days that uh, that I've ever had in my life have been days in that tunnel in that seed vault and um, I'm not talking about exuberant party kind of happy but just a, a sense of satisfaction that um, the kind of work that I started off to do uh, 40 years ago is um, that here in this in this tunnel um, you can see some effect and there we we have really um, helped to save a lot of diversity thank you and when I first heard about the Svalbard Seed Vault, I kind of had this picture in my mind of my computer's external hard drive, but expand that globally. And you, and you just called it, I think you said, an, an insurance policy for the globe um, and for our future as a species. So I was doing a little Googling around the internet and started reading PBS, NPR, and the Boston Globe, and they were all calling it the Garden of Eden or even a modern day Noah's Ark. And what do you think about those comparisons? Well, they're interesting. <laughs> um, I, I think journalists uh, will always search for a metaphor, um, and 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 that's fine. In in the past, it was so difficult to talk to people about this issue. No one no one really cared. And in a sense, I think we needed a metaphor, and we needed an image that people could lock onto, and be curious about, and want to want to understand. And that's what the seed vault has given us. It's given us a way of, of talking about this larger issue so that um, people can begin to understand that, that the real world and that evolution, that climate, they affect our crops, not just uh, wild animals and plants in the tropical rainforest. And we have to understand, I often tell people that extinction is a process, it's not an event. So we don't have to wait until the last wheat plant becomes extinct to declare that wheat is extinct. Um, wheat becomes extinct when there's no longer enough diversity within wheat as a species to allow it to evolve to changing conditions because conditions are always changing. So wheat always has to evolve, and it evolves with our help through, through plant breeding. So the seed vault has given us a chance to explain the importance of diversity. That It's not just that we have a, a plate at dinner that has a lot of different kinds of foods on it, but that there's a diversity behind all those different kinds as well. So in the Climate, Mind, and Behavior program at Garrison, we spend a lot of time exploring how our internal emotional lives influence the way we respond to climate change. And so when I watched the documentary uh, Seeds of Time, there's a scene when you talk about your ongoing battle with cancer. And I wondered if this impacts your commitment to to the work that you're doing. Well, you know, I'm not I'm not totally sure. Um, it's a good question because I've had cancer twice, and both both kinds were were pretty serious. And I, I think most people would say, "Oh, well, you know, he must have survived those those two kinds of cancer, and then become steeled to in commitment to do something." I was already pretty committed before that, so I don't have any. Um, I don't have a control group. In other words, I guess the honest answer is I don't know what it'd be like if I hadn't had cancer. But I do know that it does, um, that surviving cancer does make you appreciate the small things. And it maybe helps in keeping your eye on the big things in life. Yeah. 
And so what what else in your life do you think? I know this is a, like a lifelong question and none of us really know the answer, but what is it that keeps you so committed and, and passionate about what you do? Well, there's still a lot more to be done, both by me and, and by many others and future generations to conserve and use this crop diversity. It's one of the central questions of our time. But I think we live in tough times now, and I, I've always been committed in some way to democracy, small d, to civility, to respecting people and trying to communicate in a respectful way to people that, that I don't or that don't agree with me. And certainly for many years, I've been committed to, I suppose you'd say, sort of an informed pragmatism. I, I want to get something done. Like everybody else, I can I can shut the door at night and scream and say, well, how crazy is this? Whatever was going on on the news today. But by the morning, I think we all have to get up and say, well, what, what change can we really make? And I, at a certain point in my life, really wanted to do something that was concrete. I didn't want to be the person who's um, made a profession out of complaining. I wanted to be a person who made a profession out of actually solving some problems. And I think we need more people like that, though I value the people who just complain. <laughs> Maybe we need all of them, <laughs> but everything you've done is incredibly inspiring, especially to my generation. Well, you know, what's going on today is the, the civil rights movement of, of your generation. And it's very easy to, to look back in time to when I was a young person your age and there, the civil rights movement was going on. And it's very easy for us now to look back and say, well, of course, you know, that, the, the question was so obvious. And obviously, we would have been on the right side of that issue, and we would have been marching with the sanitation workers in Memphis and, and such. But the reality is that not too many people were doing that back in those days. They found something better to do. It wasn't convenient. They had an appointment. It was to do something else. And um, I think we have a number of things going on today, and climate is another moment where we're called upon to put aside our normal day-to-day -day activities and to pitch in and right the ship. And so this is our civil rights mo moment again. It's just coming with a different name. What made the difference, do you think, for your generation in terms of the civil rights movement? And, and how can we learn from that now? I, I don't know the short answer is, but um, I suppose that for many of us involved in the civil rights movement, it was a moral issue. There was a moral impetitive. You just felt in your heart that this was something that you had to do. And looking the other way, ignoring it, having something better to do that day, just morally and ethically wasn't a possibility. And I hope that many in my generation and yours uh, right now are beginning to feel the same thing, because that's what it takes. And, and you've touched on this, but what do you do? Do you have any kind of practice in your life, whether it's spiritual, contemplative, or just taking a walk? with a friend or with a loved one when you're really feeling down and feeling like I can't do this anymore, if you ever get that feeling? Oh, well, I, that's a great question because I, I should have. <laughs> I should have something like that. Maybe I need to get a dog. They're always optimistic. <laughs> Every president seems to have a dog. I think it's helpful. <laughs> so you don't, you don't really have anything? Not, not really. I mean, um, yeah, I do get depressed and I, I get crazy you know at times but I just think 
Carrie, you know, suck it up. <laughs> you've been going for, you know, I'm in my 60s and um, you've been going this long. And I will say one of the things that, you know, what did I set out to do 50-something years ago? I set out simply not to quit. I realized that success is not guaranteed in life. People don't realize that. But you can say, well, I want to be successful. I want to do this. I want to do that. I want to start a company. I want to be a star. I want to be... Success is not guaranteed. The only thing that's guaranteed is the the chance to try something. And I think it's more important to be faithful to trying to do something than it is to succeeding. That's the real, that's the real thing. You, you just have to get up every morning and try, and you can call it persistence, or you can call it stubbornness, you can call it focus. There are a lot of words for this, but I, I think there's a lot to be said for simply not giving up. So that's what drives me at this point. Um, I sure don't know if I'm going to be successful at anything I'm doing now. But, you know, sometime I think before I take my last breath, I hope to be able to find some solace in the fact that I didn't give up at least. I think you did more than just not give up. But I, I take hope in what you're saying because there's not as much barrier to entry if you look at your life as trying your best and getting up and just trying because everybody can do that. Yeah, that's true. And and I think when you're young, you will typically define success in different ways than you will when you're older. So why would you want to pursue this dream of success at an early age when you don't even know how you're going to end up defining success in the in the end? I mean, much of what I'm known for as you as you pointed out earlier is this seed vault. I didn't wake up some morning 40 years ago and say I'm going to build a seed vault. In fact, if I had done that I would have been sure I was crazy it was I I grew up in Tennessee kids from Tennessee don't dream of making a seed vault near the North Pole it just doesn't happen but what what does happen is that you latch on to a particular problem and you decide well I want to do something to solve that problem and you don't have to have a grand vision of what that means when you wake up in the morning Grand visions typically take a long time to unfold. And so, you know, nobody is, I don't want to say that I'm different from anybody else in the world because I'm not. I didn't have such a grand vision. All I had was the commitment to doing something. So you take a step and then you look around and then you, you say to yourself, well, what's the next step I should take? And after you've taken 50 steps, you can look behind you, or maybe some people will look at that and say, oh, that was brilliant. You did all those things. What an incredible plan. Well, actually, the plan was the plan from step one to step two and step two to step three, not step one to 50. <laughs> it doesn't happen that way. So I think young people should not be intimidated if they don't have some grand vision. That's really not how the world works. I don't know anybody in my life that's ever functioned that way. So I really just believe it's incremental and that you, if you're willing to take incremental steps and if you're willing to follow that where it leads, wherever it leads, and it might lead to multiple careers in different areas, that um, you'll have a very interesting and productive life and fulfilling. That really resonates. There's an interesting On Being episode, the podcast On Being with Krista Tippett. She's interviewing Elizabeth Gilbert, the author of Eat, Pray, Love and, and other books. And they're talking about ideas as living beings and how they evolve and they take shapes and they spread. 
and our generation, I think that there's a sort of sense that we're not focused enough and that we don't know the policies that we want to change. And I, and I think while that it's good to know what you're asking for, it's also so important. Bill McKibben said it to think about the general zeitgeist of the culture in this moment. What do we all care about? And I think there's something about it's okay to just know that we want to go in this direction. We don't necessarily have to know exactly where we are going. Yeah, that's right. And I think I think he's right about that. And I also believe that at a certain point, as young people try different things and get involved in different social, political issues, whatever, at a certain point, at least in my experience and watching other people, something's going to resonate with you as an individual. You'll happen upon some issue and for some reason emotionally you'll be really drawn to it. And it might be because of something from your childhood or something that sparks memories. And people need those kind of emotional connections with the work they do. I think deciding what to do in life is is as much an emotional process as an intellectual process. So I think that um, young people or anyone else who sit in their room, you know, with their elbows on the table, sort of thinking now, what should I do? What should I do? What do I want to be? What do I, you know, that's kind of the wrong way to do it. I think you need to get out in the world. You need to try things and you need to have faith that sooner or later, uh, something will resonate. Something will catch you. You'll fall in love and, uh, you'll be pulled inescapably in a certain, in a certain direction. And I, I guess it goes along with that to say that, um, I think it's really important for me at least, to have figured out what I wanted to do rather than what I wanted to be. Sometimes people ask me about my career, and I, I'm always laughing internally when people use the word career in a, in a question with me because I never, never, never thought of my life as a career. I didn't think in linear terms. I did not think in terms of identity of well, Carrie is a fill-in-the-blank, you know, a dentist, a doctor, a professor, a, a plumber. I never thought in terms of titles or anything like that. And uh, my parents always had difficulty explaining to their friends what I was because I wasn't a what. I was doing certain things, and I was pursuing certain a certain mission, but that didn't amount to a title. So I think I fell in love first with a particular topic and I just pursued it and along the way I did become at least on paper a number of different things a professor a UN diplomat a, an NGO a, all kinds of things but that was always irrelevant to what I was doing that was just the means if you start off with the means you don't get very far because you think of those means as ends you think well I want to be a doctor no I think you know don't you want to help treat people cure people help them with illness. And you can do that, of course, in multiple ways. So I think starting off with the title is really the wrong way to go. But that was just for me. Maybe it works for other people. I'm smiling because as you're saying that, I'm picturing you as a 10-year-old boy thinking, I want to be the Noah of, the build Noah's Ark for plants. I assure you that didn't happen. <laughs> and, and if you had thought of it that way, it probably wouldn't have happened because everyone would have looked at you and said, you are crazy. That's right. Well, I guess I was old enough that uh, by the time I, I started suggesting that, I was, I was immune to people telling me I was crazy. Yeah. But if you do it too early in life, people will step on you. 
I want to go back. You were you just mentioned the idea of childhood as something that might come back later in life and and inform what you want to be. So I want to go back to your childhood. There's a scene in the Seeds of Time documentary where you're fishing with your two sons. You're back in Memphis, Tennessee, where you grew up, and you're recalling summers on your family farm. And you're talking about your grandmother's connection with the soil. You're also talking about the connection with your neighbors and this sort of sense that you have to take care of your neighbors and take care of the world. So I'm wondering, how did that affect you? Well, I, I think um, I think growing up in that setting and with the emotional ties I had with my, particularly my mother's family, um, my maternal grandmother, I think they, they explain why I'm doing what I'm doing now, um, full stop. I didn't study this in school. I think I think everything you learn in life ultimately has an impact and and helps you with whatever you you do in life uh, so you can learn valuable lessons in every field and every academic field of study. But I don't think those kind of things explain why people end up having one profession or another, pursuing one goal or another. And so for me, I think it was that connection with the land, with the farming, with uh, my grandmother always wanted me to be a farmer. I wasn't quite cut out for that, though I tried a little bit. Um, and I think that explains why I'm doing it. And I think that that explains why it gives me a lot of emotional satisfaction. And I, and I believe if you just make a decision about what to do in life based on intellect, it's unlikely that that alone would keep you going, would feed you enough emotionally to to help you be satisfied, to help you overcome the difficult and dark points, the, the moments when people tell you that you're crazy or they discourage you or you get fired from your job and you have to figure out whether you're going to switch fields or not. Um, you need some sustenance and some strength to get through those moments that will come to every single person. And where do, you, where do you draw upon it if you don't draw upon it from very old, deep-rooted emotional things in your own life? So I, I think that for many of us, the staying power that we have derives from something from childhood, actually, that keeps on feeding us. Um, that really resonates with me. And there was a moment you were just mentioning that the seed banks are actually called gene banks. And it made me think of the movie that I just watched recently, Interstellar. The movie starts out with the premise that agriculture has collapsed. They don't think of a seed bank, which I think is interesting. And they're trying to figure out, do we get the humans that are alive on Earth today to space, which is a much harder task, or do we use this way, this time warp that we figured out to just take the human embryos? And what matters more, the future of the human race or the people that are living today? And and I don't think you have to exactly struggle with that in your day-to-day -day work, but there is a certain, like, who are these seeds for? Well, I think um, it pays to be humble in this field. And um, I think at one point it just occurred to me that, um, you know, I'm not, and nobody in my field is trying to solve all the world's problems and there are big questions out there, but it doesn't mean we have to answer all those questions in order to make a contribution. So some people have asked in the past, well, what do you decide what to save, what to conserve, and what not to conserve in this seed vault? Um, I don't know what's going to be needed in the future. And so we just conserve everything. 
and we let future generations figure out whether all that's needed or not. We're, we're not God, so we don't have that kind of uh, crystal ball to look into the future and tell what, what is good diversity and what's bad diversity and what's the best to conserve and not the best to conserve. We just don't do that. And, and I think from beginning to end, by the way, of the Seed Vault uh, adventure, there have been people saying to me and to others, well, you know, all the advances in technology is going to make this irrelevant. They were saying that 20 years ago. They're still saying it. And underlying that is a deep, I think, a deep sense of um, technological optimism. And on the other side, a deep sense of personal pessimism, such as why would you ever want to do something when you can't be 100% sure that it's going to work? And like I said before, we're not guaranteed with success in this world. And in some ways, you know, you got to hope that what you do becomes irrelevant, that we don't really need. I mean, wouldn't it be nice if we didn't need insurance policies? <laughs> that would be good. So um, I, I, in a way, hope that that's what it turns out to be, a big boondoggle. But we don't, we don't know that yet. So um, all we can do is, is push forward. You're preparing for the apocalypse in a way by building this seed bank. And then at the same time, I mean, you, you seem optimistic about the future of the planet. Yeah, I, I have been more optimistic the older I've gotten. And um, I think part of that comes from being active. I think pessimism very often derives from inactivity. I think, frankly, you know, if you look at the world today and you look at some of the really hateful, spiteful, totally ineffective things that come out on the Internet, for example, and you trace them back to their origin, then you find the the stereotypical person sitting in their windowless basement angry at the world. Well, duh, they're not actually doing anything. They actually haven't gotten out of the basement out in the real world and tried to make a concrete contribution. If they do, then I think the, the world changes in their eyes, and it's not so terrible. But I think people have to get active and not just sit in the room and stew about it. I think it's really great that as you've gotten older, you're saying you've gotten more optimistic because it's usually the other way around. You would think so. I mean, I have fewer days left than you do, so it's, you know... Um, but, I, you know, I think um, I see a lot of reasons for being being optimistic. And I just think that it's easier to live with yourself and therefore easier to feel good about yourself and everybody else if you're not a spectator. I very often give a certain analogy, and that is that if you're a passenger in a car and the car is about to get in a wreck, I think we've all had this experience, right? You slam on the imaginary brakes with your right foot. <laughs> You, your foot moves to the to the brake pedal, even though you're on the passenger side of the car. And that's my definition of of being a spectator and and of pessimism. But but if you're the driver of the car, you're more in control. You know you're not going to hit the car next to you or whatever. And uh, so I think the goal is to be in the driver's seat and not to be the spectator. It's as simple as that. Gonna stew on that one for a little while. I really, really like that analogy. Moving on to, I think this is my last question that I wanted to ask you. And I've heard rumors that there's a little niche inside of the seed vault that was cut out for 
an urn that will one day perhaps hold your ashes. Is this true? Uh, well, it's a bit of a joke, but no, I did. I did have a conversation with one of the construction workers one day while they were building the seed vault, and he asked if there was anything else he could do for me down there. They could do for me. I, I just joked and said, "Yeah, you can. You can cut out a place where I can put an urn someday with my ashes." And he and he laughed and he said, "Well, we've, we've already done it." And he took me to a place and he pointed up to a little ledge. Um, overlooking one of the vault rooms and said, there it is. And it didn't look exactly like that. I'm sure they didn't do it for that purpose. And, and I'm sure the Norwegian government will never allow it. But um, I, I could derive some, some peace of mind if they would. <laughs> so, we'll see. That's amazing. Okay. Thank you so much for joining me today, Carrie. Thank you. To learn more about the Garrison Institute's Climate, Mind, and Behavior program, visit garrisoninstitute.org, where you can also listen to an archived podcast of this show, join our mailing list, and sign up for our monthly email newsletter, delivering the latest research and programs from around the world that promote resilience in a changing climate, right to you. Our theme music is composed by Zoe Keating, You can find her music on iTunes or on her website, zoekeating.com.